0: Hello and welcome to this podcast series about gout. My name is Mel Brook and I am the Patient and Public Engagement Programme Director for Bird. In this first episode, our guest is Dr. Tom Williams, who is a consultant rheumatologist at the Royal National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases at the RUH in Bath. Tom gives us a very thorough and easily understandable explanation of what gout is. He helps to unravel the cause of gout, sheds light on how it affects the body and explains the kinds of symptoms it can cause in addition to the well-recognised painful red and swollen big toe. He explains how it is diagnosed and helps to debunk some of the myths and stigma commonly surrounding gout. Tom admits he's very passionate about gout because it's one of the few inflammatory conditions that can be effectively treated. In part two, we will talk about all the medications. So please listen to both episodes of the podcast. So today we're going to be talking about gout, which a lot of people may have heard about um may even suffer from. And it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Tom Williams to the podcast. Hello, Tom. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's good to have you along. I wonder if we could just start maybe by giving people a little bit of background about yourself, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a consultant rheumatologist working in the Royal National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases. Um, I, I joined the team as a substantive consultant in March this year. Um, prior to that, um, some of you might have met me in my previous role as a consultant in the Great Western Hospital in Swindon, um, and many years ago I did work, here, work in Bath as a registrar as well, so I'm not entirely new to the team, um, but it's good to be back. Uh, my my main area of interest uh, is in axial arthritis, but I see a whole, whole range of patients with rheumatological conditions, and gout is obviously one of the more common ones, so I'm, I'm very happy to talk about that a bit further today.
0: Brilliant, and yes, we did have you helping out at one of our events a few years ago when we were doing a lot of face-to-face events. Um, I think that was Accessible, wasn't it? It was. It was. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's good to have you on the podcast. We've not had you on our podcast with us, so Thank lovely you. to have you back, Tom. And it's nice to branch out into a new area. Absolutely, and the you know we've been reaching good numbers with these, so hopefully this will help a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they do.
0: So, thanks for that start, Tom. Let's make a start with some of the sort of basic background information about gout. So perhaps you could give us um, an overview about what gout actually is and sort of how it affects the body.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so gout is is actually the most common form of inflammatory arthritis. Um, so, so it's more common in the population than the rheumatoid arthritis, which is what we generally think of as a, the most common form of inflammatory arthritis. Um, and it's a condition that gets more prevalent as people get older. Um, so the older you are, the more likely you are to experience gout. And up to about one in 20 people will experience at least one episode of gout in their lifetime. Um, so, So, yeah, it's a very common condition. Um, and it's the only form of inflammatory arthritis that we can cure. So, so you know, not just keep it under control with medication, but if we if we manage it properly, then th- th- we do have the potential to make it so that you don't get further attacks of gout and have fairly predictable control over that. So it's one that uh, you know I'm very passionate about. Do mm. that we do treat this better than we've done previously. Um, there's obviously a lot of historical myths and stigma around gout, and hopefully, you know, we can get into some of that mm-hmm. as part of this discussion and untangle and, and bust some of those myths. Um, it's more common in, in men than women. It's also a condition that that is heavily influenced by lots of other medical conditions, such as heart disease and diabetes and uh, and our body weight as well, so and and, and kidney function. So, um, lots of different mm-hmm. aspects to it that 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 I think can quite easily be overlooked.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting that we can start a podcast saying that this is something that can be treated really effectively to the point where, you know, people aren't experiencing it anymore. We, you know, that's not something you hear very often with any of these conditions. So and you mentioned it's inflammatory. Does that mean it's also triggered by an autoimmune response? Does it come under that kind of?
1: Okay. Yeah. So um, in terms of what, what we think causes gout, so, so the, the, by far the most important risk factor is having high levels of of a chemical called uric acid in your blood Um, Mm -hmm. and um if if we think of sort of an analogy to this so if you know you go to make your morning cup of coffee um and you've you've got a, a boiling mug of water and uh you put one spoonful of coffee granules into it and you stir it and it will all dissolve and that's not a problem if you keep adding more and more spoonfuls to it and particularly as the water starts to cool down eventually that will start forming little crystals at the bottom of the mug and it's an analogous situation with gout so that if you've got uric acid levels in your blood that are very very high that can no longer dissolve in the blood um eventually you'll form crystals in the coolest areas of the body. And that's very commonly in the joints, particularly those towards, you know, sort of your feet and ankles, but but those certainly those furthest away from where the body's at its warmest. So so cooler areas of the body. And for whatever reason, the immune system, which is there to protect us is there to recognize things that shouldn't be there, like infection and foreign bodies Mm. um, will recognize those crystals as being one of those effectively a foreign body and it will mount an attack against it. And Mm. that's when you get the symptoms of the pain and the swelling and the redness that that come with the gout attacks. Um, but actually, you know, if we think about it, if we can stop us from forming those crystals by lowering the uric acid in the, in the blood, um, below that level where it can dissolve, then hopefully that that shouldn't happen anymore. So, so that's where the potential for curing the condition comes from.
0: Right. So that that's a really good um way of being able to describe it visually is to think of, you know, like the sediment at the bottom of a of a cup or um at the bottom of a kettle you get all that sort of scale don't you and then yeah. understanding that then the body is trying to reject that and, you know, it that's a really good way of um explaining I think Tom. Thank you for that. So before we talk about the ways it's managed and diagnosis as well how it's diagnosed can we talk a little bit more about the kind of the symptoms and the things that may be you know people commonly understand to be symptoms are there things that we don't understand to be symptoms that are less common
1: yeah absolutely so um so the most the most common way that gout will present um is, and 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 this you know this is very well recognized by lots of people that suffer the condition is that very very rapid onset of severe pain um, with redness and swelling often of the big toe um, and and um as as doctors give that a fancy latin name called pedagra. Um, so some of the uh, key features of that really is that the symptoms reach the or the pain reaches this maximal intensity within hours of of the onset so it's not it's generally not something that builds up over days or weeks you know within 24 hours mm-hmm. the pain is at its most severe level that it that it will be for that attack Mm. Um, and often people will describe that that pain will come on overnight. Um, often it's that the bed sheets, just, just, just the feeling of the bed sheets on the, on the joint is extremely uncomfortable and painful. And usually w- another feature of gout, as opposed to other forms of inflammatory arthritis is that, you know, even if we did absolutely nothing, at least for those initial attacks, it, it will eventually burn itself that de- burn itself out, mm. um, usually over about two weeks um now obviously there are there are medications that we can use to to make those attacks shorter and there is a proportion of patients that uh, later in the condition as it becomes more more established can can develop more long lasting inflammation and often can develop more into a sort of chronic form of arthritis but the most common way it presents at least initially is is with what we call what i call podagra, uh, mm. which is that which is that inflammation of the big toe and then it, it can certainly affect lots of other joints in the body so in, in theory just about any joint can be affected but as, as i said earlier it tends to affect more those joints that are a bit furthest away from the heart where where the body's at its warmest so often other other joints in the in the foot and ankle um the knees can be affected, and then um it, it, some people will find that the that the finger joints can be affected, for example. After the condition has been there for some time, some patients can start to experience these um, slightly unsightly firm lumps They're called tophi, uh, or, or a single one would be called a tophus, and uh, they, they can happen on on the fingers or toes or um, often around around the elbows uh, over the surface as well, and they can be quite uncomfortable as well. The inflammation of the joints it tends to at least initially affect mostly the, the foot and ankle joints and then progress to other joints later.
0: So when you talk about the pain, we said it's very painful and it could just be irritated by something like the sheets um, rubbing over a toe if it's gone into the toe. Uh, do people report it as being something like a a stabbing pain or, you know, like a throbbing pain? What what have people described to you? Um,
1: I mean, I've, I've heard all sorts of descriptions used. What's universal is it's really very bad. <laughs> um, right. It reaches that level of severity very early on compared to, other conditions that that we see um, so so as i said it's that it 's that very rapid onset and uh, and as I say, even if you do nothing, it will usually settle within within about two weeks and that really distinguishes it from other other potential mm. conditions that we 're thinking of when we 're trying to to give you a diagnosis it, it can as I say, affect other joints later, but it's very unusual for somebody. Who has gout never to experience an attack in in the big toe because that that that's such mm. a commonly affected joint um, mm. in in this condition.
0: I mean the kind of the cartoon image you get of that is is a massively swollen toe isn't it and bright red as well Bright
1: red absolutely yeah. and and often co- co- sort of a shiny sort of appearance to it and and you didn't touch it because, mm. because because it's so it's so painful to do that and um and certainly people find it almost impossible to stand on it when when when, mm. when, the, when the toe is very inflamed
0: mm. so it's really uncomfortable really painful and a lot more than it sounds like or what most people would think about it if they'd never experienced it so I feel sorry for people who um, have an attack of that in the middle of the night.
1: Yeah. And and I think, you know, what, one of the messages I think is important to get across is that th- th- there, there might be a perception amongst some that, you know, it, it it's, it's a painful condition, but you'll get over it. And and so, you know, maybe not as serious as some other conditions that we treat. But I, I think that's wrong. and And there's increasing evidence that actually people that don't have their gout well managed are at more risk of developing other serious health consequences as well. For example, increased risk of things like heart attacks, strokes, um, kidney disease. So particularly when we've got very effective treatment, I think mm-hmm. it's really important that that people who live with this condition come forward to seek help and that we make sure that we we treat people appropriately.
0: Mm. Yes, it sounds like there's some quite Risky factors there in terms of other health conditions. So, so what are some of the risk factors for people who develop gout or get gout or any kind of predisposing factors that may influence them having one of these attacks?
1: Yeah. So, so as I as I mentioned in the introduction, the by, by far the most important risk factor is is having persistently high levels of this chemical called uric acid in your blood, and th- there's basically two balancing considerations there which is how much of that chemical do you do you produce or put into your body and then how effective is your body at at clearing out Mm. clearing it out of your system Um, and certainly in the UK the, the majority of people who suffer with gout the main problem is that inability to clear the uric acid effectively from the system. So so most species don't suffer with this condition because they have an enzyme that allows them to break uric acid down into smaller constituent parts. Oh, right. as, as human beings and, and a small number of other animals, we don't have that enzyme. And so our kidneys have to have to clear the uric acid out as it is. So anything that makes it relatively harder for your kidneys to get that out of your system increases your risk so the classic things are um having having kidney impairment um and as we get older our kidneys do start to function mm. less well than, than when we were born being on certain medications so there are certain medications that uh people are on when they have high blood pressure or have heart disease called diuretics, which are the drugs that help us clear excess fluid and salt from the body, mm-hmm. they, relatively speaking, make it harder for the kidneys to, to clear uric acid. So people on those drugs tend to run higher uric acid levels. So so those are the those are the two main risk factors that we see. Um, alcohol has a certain effect on both sides. So lots of alcohol contains a, a protein called purine that Uh, eventually is broken into uric acid so we overproduce the uric acid but also the kidneys find find with alcohol is harder to clear it as well so Mm -hmm. it has a kind of double double whammy effect Uh, certainly having more you know more body fat um, increases the risk of um, of gout as well because again for both reasons it's you make more uric acid and you find it harder to clear it There are certain genetic conditions, so so some sort of metabolic storage disorders that, that that can predispose us uh, to this problem as well, and that's perhaps more on the o- overproduction side, um, as well as people that have to have certain treatments. For example, for certain types of blood cancer, um, will over uh, overproduce uric acid because they're clearing out these cancerous cells from their body so quickly, and and the body can't handle it. So so those are, are sort of the the main risk factors really. Uh, but but in the overwhelming majority, the the, the main issue is that inability to effectively clear the uric acid out through the kidneys.
0: Mm. So, the, so just by being human was one factor, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Medications and then other lifestyle choices that we may make might influence it. But I think in the past, gout's been stigmatized, hasn't it? Along with, oh, that must be someone who drinks a lot of alcohol. And maybe that arose from the kind of the message that actually it will just increase your chances of getting gout and maybe that's something that needs to be debunked a bit
1: yeah absolutely i mean the, the, you know there's no two ways about it that that alcohol um is a risk factor um mm. for gout and the, the more alcohol you consume the higher your risk is mm. um in terms of which alcoholic drinks that we think that probably spirits are probably the worst right. and, as a as a risk factor and then and then probably beer and cider and then wine but actually you know it's probably quantity is more important mm. than um than which particular drink that you choose mm. um uh, but but it's as i've just outlined there it's it's, it's only one of many other risk Not factors that contribute contribute to risk of gout yeah. um and it, to be honest the majority of people that i see with gout um actually don't don't drink that much alcohol and it, it's more because of things like their other medical conditions mm. and the um and, and the medications they have to take for it that are primarily responsible
0: so we talked about alcohol. Can any of these other kind of risk factors be modified or or reduced? You- yeah, uh,
1: absolutely. So uh, obviously, mod- moderation of alcohol is is an important mm-hmm. message. Um, there are other things that I, I would say are really helpful that you can do that will help improve your your chances of controlling your gout better. So one of the biggest messages I give to patients I see is um, to make sure they have a good intake of of water every day to really kind of flush the kidneys out. So um, I'd say at least four pints of water a day or, or two liters. Okay. Um, and and try to avoid some of those kind of sugary fizzy drinks. The fructose containing those is is quite a significant risk factor in and of itself for for the gout. The other things, uh, you know, there, there are certain diets that are more likely to increase your purine intake and, and increase your risk of having gout. So mm-hmm. a diet that's got a lot of red meat and shellfish in particular will, will make it more likely that you find it difficult to control your gout. Um, what I would really encourage people to do is to have a look at the UK Gout Society website. And they've got um, really in-depth and and reputable information there about which sorts of food groups you should consume a lot of which in in moderation and which you should try to restrict and that and that's a a website i often direct my patients to
0: that's really useful i think it, it would be quite handy for people to be able to go somewhere and check if some of the food choices they're making are actually contributing to gout so i think we'll put some of those links in the show notes as well so we've kind of talked around the symptoms and the causes and things. like How is it assessed? So when someone presents with gout, you know, obviously there's the the big red toe and the kind of the obvious yeah. symptoms. How is gout assessed by healthcare professionals and where does that start? Yeah, so... Um...
1: Uh, if I, so sort of work my way backwards here so that the absolute gold standard in terms of making a diagnosis ideally is to is to draw some fluid out of the joint that's been inflamed and to look at that fluid under a microscope and, mm. um, and, and we can see the crystals under the microscope. So the uric acid crystals that trigger the gout. Right. Um, uh, so that's the most robust way of of giving you a definite diagnosis and if there's any uncertainty then then that's the that's the best way of resolving evidence. it mm-hmm. um but in practice that's often very difficult to do and particularly something like the big toe joint it's not easy to get fluid out of there and it would be extremely painful mm-hmm. um so i'd say by far the most common way of diagnosing it is is based Basically, on pattern recognition. So it it it's that typical story, as as I described a bit earlier, of mm-hmm. the symptoms. It's looking at the risk factors. It's making sure there's there's nothing else like infection or something that could be could be causing the mm-hmm. symptoms. Um, so, so it's just putting all of those things together. And then once we've done the the clinical assessments and so taken the history. Examine the patient. We will then use some simple tests to support the diagnosis. So we can actually measure the level of uric acid that's in the blood. Uh, now, that's not in in and of itself a diagnostic test because there are there are lots of people out there that have high uric acid levels that never experience gout. So it, it's it's not you know if you've got a high uric acid level we can diagnose you with gout. It right. it's, if you've got the typical symptoms, then having a high uric acid level would support. The, the diagnosis that we've already sort of arrived at hmm. and then we you know we can use sometimes things like x-rays to see if the gout has caused any long-term damage to the joints um more recently there, there are some sort of fancier forms of of imaging like dual energy ct scans that we do use in a very small number of cases um, if we've got any uncertainty about what the diagnosis is Mm. And and as I said earlier, the ideal, if if we can't work out what's going on, is to actually draw draw some fluid out mm. of the joint.
0: And that clearly evidences it because you can see the crystals. Absolutely. So, I mean, that doesn't sound like something maybe uh, would happen in a GP surgery. Is this so? Is this happening in in uh, primary care, or does it? Come... Uh, I
1: mean, it, it can do. Um, uh, so it. I would say it depends a lot on which joints have been affected. Mm. Um, So, for example, if it's a knee, usually you get quite a lot of, because it's a big joint, it's quite easily accessible and you get a lot of fluid in the joint capsule. Um, It's relatively easy for most trained healthcare professionals to be able to obtain fluid from that joint. And then all that needs to be done is sent to the lab. You know, with a with mm. request to look at it under a microscope. But if, it, if they're joints like the big toe that are a lot harder to get fluid out of, then mm-hmm. I mean, whether they come to the GP or secondary care, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not aware of any circumstance where we would want to. Try to get fluid out of that um, because it's, it, you know, it would be extremely painful for the patient, and and in practice, you probably wouldn't get enough fluid out to to get a meaningful sample to look at. So, um, so yeah, that really depends on which joints have been affected and to what extent do we need to do that in order to have certainty of the diagnosis versus just using that pattern recognition um, that, that that we use for the majority of patients.
0: Okay, so what would trigger someone with gout? Know, coming into secondary care what would be the need for someone to come through to a consultant yeah at, you
1: know, uh, in, sure i think I think, to... I think the the short answer to that is if the primary care clinician that's looking after them the gp or or, or practice nurses having difficulty in controlling the gout through conventional treatments okay. Okay. um And and perhaps we can talk a bit more about treatment later in the the podcast. But but yeah, certainly if somebody's gout is not well controlled, there are a series of things that can be done in primary care. If they have any worries about the diagnosis or they've tried treatment and it's not effective or they've tried treatment and run into complications from it and they're unsure of what to do next. um, I would always encourage my primary care colleagues at the very least, to contact us for advice and where appropriate, we will, you know, we will arrange to see those patients face to face so that we can make an assessment.
0: OK. Huge thanks to Tom for sharing his knowledge with us today and do make sure you join us for part two of this series on Gout. In our next episode, Tom runs through what medications there are available to treat it and ways to help self-manage it. And don't forget, you can always check the show notes for some additional sources of useful information and support. BIRD are committed to helping patients increase knowledge about rheumatic conditions because we know this can have a really positive impact on living with them. We also have a great focus on enabling people to get involved in rheumatology research to help make sure that new medications and treatments meet the needs of patients. We couldn't do any of this without the help of our volunteers and the support of our donors and sponsors, all of whom we are immensely grateful to. You can sign up to be notified about all our podcasts, And our patient engagement research opportunities by joining our mailing list. Just send an email to admin at birdbath.org.uk. The address and links are in the show notes.